Hi, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Alami Podcast, Change Your Company. My guest today is Russell Eisenstadt, or Russ, who is Emeritus Executive Director and co-founder of the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership and the former president and co-founder of TruePoint, a management consultancy firm. Russ's career has spent nearly three decades in both management consulting and academic research. He has pioneered the new thinking and practice on how leaders can more transform their organization to deliver not only high economical value, but also social value. And beyond that, his work in the area of large-scale organizational change and strategic alignment has earned international recognitions and awards. He has successfully partnered with clients on transformational work across a wide spectrum of industries. Russ served on the faculty of Harvard Business School and spent five years at McKinsey and Company. He's the co-author of The Higher Ambition, a book that shows how great CEOs around the world create superior long-term economic and social value, and many great articles, actually, in Harvard Business Review. He has a BA from Harvard University and PhD from Yale University. Russ, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insight with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I have to say, when I, when I read the articles, when I read the, uh, your writings, and your, uh, your experience working with organizations and the insights from this, it resonated so much with me. And it actually, it resonates so much with the core mission of this podcast and its values, which is all about going beyond high performance, delivering high performance, but going beyond it. And, and the article actually, which really talks about this dilemma that leaders have when when leading organizations and their teams, which is performance, results, profit, and people. And the the article itself, it talks about it in a very clear way about how to navigate through this to be able to uh, over-deliver on both sides. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about this dilemma and what do leaders or what should leaders should be they be focusing more on uh, when when they are looking at these two dimensions? Yeah, so it's a it's a big topic, right? Because it's certainly one that goes to the to the heart of I think what it means to be um, a leader of an organization. Um, you know, the reality is that business leaders are working in a in a highly competitive and uh, global in competitive environment, you know, shareholders don't have a lot of tolerance for not making the performance metrics and making things come, come out right. And on the other hand, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're human beings first of all, right? We don't leave our humanity at the door when we go into organizations. And the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, organizations are made up of human beings. They serve human beings who are their customers, um, the people who in their communities. And, you know, even investors are human beings, you know, when you think about um, impact investors and social investors. So the human dimension is really fundamental. And so the how one reconciles both of those, I think, is an ongoing challenge. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, I think it's something that we'll unpack over, I guess, the course of this conversation. But it, it really was at the heart of the, the 
the work that we did um, and the research we did on what we came to call higher ambition leaders. Um, the notion of higher ambition, really at the heart of it, is the idea that there's nothing wrong with being ambitious, right? And and in fact, ambitious from a business perspective, but but maybe one can raise one's standards, right? Not just to deal with ambition to be achieving economic um, outperformance, but also um, to outperform relative to the contribution you make to the human beings who who an organization serves. Um, and I think, you know, you you said before. I think that you know, how do you how do you reconcile those things? I think the exciting thing that we found um, as we've talked to purpose and values driven leaders is that in fact the two can be mutually reinforcing. Um, that in, in that in some ways the basis of a great organization really is a sense of trust and commitment from your people, from your customers, a belief in that 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 in fact it, you're as a company you're a force for good. You know, we, it's interesting. You know, when you think about the 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 valuing a company, we talk about goodwill and valuing goodwill, but it's an economic, sort of an accounting term, but in fact, goodwill matters, right? <laughs> Trust yeah. matters. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's some old fashioned values about um, what it means to lead and build a great organization that really understand that the human dimension makes sense. You know, all of that being said, if you're in a turnaround situation and you're dealing with some tough circumstances, there are some tough choices that need to be made. And we can talk about, you know, how do you deal with this in an instance where you've got to take really difficult um, decisions as a senior leader um, and do that in a way that has authenticity to it. But ideally, and I think this is what we found when we spoke to um, really great CEOs and the higher ambition work, that if you build an organization that builds trust and commitment from your stakeholders, you don't get in a place where the, you're dealing with those kinds of tough trade-offs um, and you're in a place where you know it becomes a mutually reinforcing virtual circle between the value you're providing to your customers, the value, um, the environment you're creating for the people who work for your organization, and the way in which that really leads to uh, the delivery of superior economic value for your investors. That's great. I want to take a step back and ask you, why were you even interested in in solving this dilemma or exploring this? I, I'm curious about that. Is it like yeah. something which is in your background, in your childhood or the way you were raised <laughs> or, maybe some, or maybe maybe some experiences you had like in your yeah. in the beginning of your professional career? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it, it's a very good question. And it's, you know, one of those things that you could put me on the couch, right? And it could have a very long, a very long answer. Um, you know, I will say that for me, it is rooted in my own background. And, you know, we can talk about this later, but I found that we found that this was true virtually for every one of the CEOs as well. Gets back to this issue of that we can't separate who we are as human beings from the nature of the work that we do. For me, you know, I started out um, as a uh, a clinical psychologist. I grew up with um, humanistic psychology, you know, folks who 
people like Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, you know, growing up a little bit as a child of the 60s. And honestly, the reason I got interested in organizations is because I realized that, you know, while you can help people individually realize their potential and capabilities as human beings, institutions and organizations have a disproportionate impact on 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 who we are and our ability to thrive as human beings. And, you know, there's some organizations that frankly crush the human spirit and are alienating and dehumanizing. And, you know, you think about Charlie Chaplin in the in in modern times and and you know the classic assembly line. And there are other organizations that really raise people up and allow them to make extraordinary contributions in the world. And yeah. I was lucky early in my career to work at Cummins Engine and work in a uh, manufacturing plant with self-managing work teams. And, you know, the incredible um, energy and sense of meaning and purpose that was unlocked in organizations that get it right is extraordinary. And so for me, this has really been a central tension that I, I've, I've really managed over the years um, but I have to say, and I think this is something I'd love to explore with you though, in, the, in the course of this discussion, I think in a lot of ways, um, management lost its way um, in the 90s and the 2000s. And um, I do think that, you know, we're rediscovering kind of the opportunity and the promise of what business can be. Uh, but there was a long period, you know, I'd sort of see a pretty big drought there, if you will, from the 90s through the 2000s, where, you know, I think this very strong shareholder-driven Milton Friedman kind of view of business was dominant. And I think we we lost a lot of understanding around the human dimensions of management. Mm. Mm. What I like about the, the way you talk about the topic is you 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 are focusing or you're looking at the real the challenge and the uh, and the and the problem we were faced or we've been facing in leadership and management and how organizational impact on the human spirit. But you talk about it like in a way you are not too consumed by it or like because some people when they are looking at challenges like this, they, they maybe they have a little bit anger toward it. And I like your lightness about it. Uh, and uh, even though you, you, you invested most of your career or all your career in, in, in this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, well, let, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think empathy <laughs> is a really core skill and CEOs are human beings too. You know, I mean, it's very easy to kind of get into this. I, I was in, when I was at the Harvard Business School, um, I taught a, a labor management course and it was really interesting to see union officials and MBAs come together in the same classroom. And, you know, when people walked in the door, I think there was very little empathy and understanding of really, you know, walking in other people's shoes and understanding the nature of things. And, you know, business leaders are I mean, they have, it's a tough task, right? I mean, it's just, you know, and it's a balancing act and, and, and how you make that happen, dealing with really difficult issues is, is, is really challenging. And the best leaders 
you know, do, do get it right, but there are no perfect solutions. And, um, and that for me has been part of, you know, what's been interesting. It's just, it's really easy to sort of typecast, you know, business leaders or, um, the, you know, folks who are trying to build more human organizations. And then you wind up with these either or solutions as opposed to, um, how, how do you get to that integration and synthesis? You know, one of the things that was interesting for me in, in the uncompromising leader article, um, you know, we talked about this idea of holding the center. And I think that's a lot of what CEOs do, right, is they don't get trapped in the either or. You know, it's either the business side or it's the human side. It really is. I think life is complicated. It's about bringing those pieces together. And if you yeah. somehow try to come to a simplistic answer, um, you just wind up with a kind of polarization that we're just seeing too much of in this world. You know, I yeah. think I'm sorry. You kind of you got me on a topic that I feel no, passionately no, no. I think about. I, actually, yeah. actually, I like I like yeah. going, uh, going off off track if we if we call it call it a track. But I, I and I yeah. and actually, this made me even curious to ask you another question, which is: yeah. Do you think the empathy that you developed, uh, you have about this, is it something you developed or something you you had? And the compassion, uh, empathy and compassion, maybe it's, it's both in that case. As well as being clear-eyed, right? So, I mean, it's, it's so Doug Conan, it's a, he has a wonderful phrase, Doug Conan being the former CEO of Campbell Soup and but now currently remarkable higher ambition leader and currently one of the board members of the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership. And he, he talks about, you know, being, being tough-minded and tender-hearted. Um, and I, I, I really love that phrase because I do think it's sort of at the heart of what it means to be an effective leader or to think about the role of, 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 of business leaders. Um, I think the question you're asking, is it something you're born with or something that you develop? Um, I, you know, I, I, I think it's something that all of us have within us. Um, we, we have a, development program that we've developed at the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership called the Higher Ambition Leadership Institute. And, you know, you look at most of those leaders, I think, are very much dealing with both of those pieces. I do think that institutions tend to gravitate to one place or another, that there's a natural instinct for people to to polarize. Um, But I think in the right circumstances, you know, I, I, I do think that that's part of people's evolution as, you know, as leaders. And I do think it's sort of part of, for me, what's been exciting about, is interesting, even in the name higher ambition, it was sort of the tension between the higher, which is the aspirational, and ambition, which has kind of got a gritty, you know, let's, let's be real here kind of a point of view. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway... Yeah. And I think I think in a way it's interesting. I think it's part of I think business leaders, particularly purpose driven business leaders, particularly, I think, come to that that centerpiece. Um, and and it I think it's part of why I think those leaders feel like there's a contribution to be made to the world, because sometimes 
polit- you know, the political leaders tend to be very much ideological and, you know, extreme. And then, you know, you see traditional business leaders who are all about the bottom line and it's purely about, you know, being tough minded and there's no sense of the human piece. And so to me, that is the opportunity is to bring those together. Um, I think if you if you don't have either, I, I just don't see how you can move forward in the world. Yeah. How do you, I mean, it sounds, yeah, I'm curious for yourself, is that, how, how did you come to this? You know, do you, because it sounds like it resonates for you as well. What, what the, the empathy or the... Yeah, well, or the yeah. sense of the, the balance between both of those pieces, yeah. Yeah, no, I think for me, it's it's been continuously kind of a question I've, I've been asking myself. And actually, it, it, it drove me in, in the work that I, I have been doing in agility for uh, around uh, seven years. And um, and uh, and I was asking this question, which is, is it possible to reach that? And uh, in a way, we kind of proved that it's possible. And uh, and when when you are kind of, um, and this is something you talk about actually in the change programs, uh, you know, why change program don't de- don't don't deliver change in the Harvard Business Review together with Mike Beer, Professor Mike Beer, uh, which is if you give people if you create the right environment. And and it's yep. not about just talking about cultural change, but you give them real work, and and you you make them deal with real situations, solve real problems, and you create an environment which helps them to grow while solving these problems. This is like yep. it's, it's it's amazing thing to do. Yeah. No, you can yeah. bring the pieces together, and I yeah. think you know it's interesting for me in terms of my own learning over the years when Mike and I did that original work, which was back in the 80s, um, we were focusing much more on the work and the environmental and the hard dimensions. Um, And I think one of the things that I've discovered since then is that that's absolutely key. The other dimension I do think is leadership. And we, we talked about that in in back in that book, but I've also really understood it more, which is that people learn from other people and the ability to see leaders who embody those characteristics is very powerful and seeing how they are able to be successful, you know, to survive and thrive in the world. I mean, I think yeah. about, you know, in the leadership development program, it's been very powerful having Uh, Doug Conan as the lead faculty member because, you know, Doug, in terms of his own example and and approach, you say, oh, yeah, I get it. I can see how I can put these pieces together, you know, and 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 so the learning, the learning by example, I think, is 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 very is very powerful. Um, One of the things that we found in the critical path book actually was that if you look at leaders who are able to lead in a different way, um, they, you can look at the lineage, you know, the degree to which they have in the past worked for another leader who embodied these principles. And, you know, it, it sort of works over time. It's almost kind of this apprenticeship model of really seeing it up close and personal, you know, where you um, understand what that model is about. You know, and, the, and unfortunately, the reverse is also true, that if you work for really bad leaders, you can come up with a very different view of what leadership is about, um, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, what's interesting is some people actually they learn what not to do by working for a bad leader, and that's a and, good point. No, it's a yeah. great point. Exactly. Exactly. And I just had actually an interview, I think it was last week, with a, with a great leader I know and I look up to. And he told me about this. Uh, he was in the military, actually, uh, in the Navy. And he told me that two leaders influenced him. One was a great role model and once he, one, another one taught him like what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great point. No, it's, yeah. it's a great point. But, we were a lot. Yeah, yeah. But this, this takes me actually to another point, which is, why do you think, so some, you said like some of these high ambition leaders, they had some background with, or, or some experiences they had and it, it drove them to deliver this high ambition uh, yeah. results. What about the one who are not high ambition leaders? Do you think they don't have this background or they haven't transformed maybe that baggage or like that this experiences into something which is what do you think the or or maybe it's different different difficult to generalize it's a great que- no it's a great question i i i want to unpack it a little bit because i think um i think that um you know if you look at business most businesses are private businesses family run you know, small businesses. And then, but the businesses that we talk about the most are publicly traded large corporations. And I want to separate the two of them because I think they're actually quite different. In fact, if you look at small businesses, family businesses, they tend to very much embody these values. And in a lot of ways, they're much more natural. I mean, you know, you and I both talked about, we both have family businesses in our history, talk about our dads, right? And our dad's values and how they treated people and how they treated customers and their natural sense of connection to the community. And so I think, and there's a great book by Danny and Isabel Miller um, about family businesses um, that, that really highlights that actually overall family businesses outperform. And the reason they outperform is because they have these values. They care about their people. They have a longer term orientation. They care about their reputation with their customers and the community. So they really invest in building a great company. So, you know, when you ask the question of is it sort of natural, I would say, well, actually, it is the most natural thing in the world. What happened in business, and this happened in the starting in the 90s and in the 2000s, is that the idea of a purely financially driven, shareholder driven view of the firm and the rise of professional managers, you know, the MBAs, right? The Harvard MBAs, I spent the years teaching at Harvard. There was this huge socialization and set of values that were inculcated that, you know, we think of it as just, well, that's what business is about. You know, the the ultimate sort of Wall Street, you know, the caricature of that is the, you know, greed is good driving forward. But but that model then became the dominant model, and that's how managers were trained. That's how they developed. Those were the leaders that they worked for. If you're going to get ahead, that's what you needed to do. And so we have, you know, if you look at the leaders who've grown up, and you know, think about my from 
my career, which was from the 80s, you know, through through to the current, this was really the world that they grew up in. And so I think in that context, I think lots of leaders then got inculcated and trained with that as the dominant approach. You know, real leaders just focus on the bottom line and they don't deal with those things. In fact, I think what we're discovering to me, I would say in a way, this is a return back to the future. It's a return to a model of business that I think in some ways is much more fundamental. And I think now what you see is people, even, you know, major investors like Larry Fink um, at, 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 at BlackRock, um, you know, who are saying, look, the purpose of business isn't just about the financial, that in fact, the best way to build a business that delivers value over the long term is to have a higher purpose, is to take more of a, a multi-stakeholder view. So I do think that there's this issue around a shift in the fundamental mindset and paradigm and ways in which leaders have been developed that's, that's happening that we're, that we're in, 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 embedded in. But, you know, if you talk to you talk to my dad or you talk to your dad, you'd say, well, of course, you know, you know, of course, you treat your customer as well. Of course, you care about the people who work for you. Of yeah, course, yeah. you know, you, you yeah. care about your reputation and the community. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah. So so is it is it is the challenge that we are talking about here, the challenge that is, is inherited in the fact that organization, when they grow, they lose their spirit or they lose their focus and values and 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 uh, and maybe mission. It gets diluted because of like size. You, it, the yeah. size, like you know, like so. Do you have the the layers, the hierarchy, and then you have the the functions, the silos? Is this because of this, or is it because of leaders don't really understand and don't have the skills? Of leading and what does it take to lead and what what to focus on or is it even a, a bigger environmental challenge which is yeah. the wall street and and the stock market and all this what do you think it's a it's a great question and i think it's actually a combination of all of the above i mean i think that you know i want to i, I want to talk in praise of wall street right so there was a reason that shareholder activism started in the 90s. You had a lot of firms that were, you know, kind of fat, dumb, and happy, honestly. You know, they were not particularly competitive, efficient. Um, they were, in a lot of ways, quite self-serving. And so, you know, there is a discipline of the market that had kind of eroded um, and, you know, back to the reality principle, being tough-minded, there was a tough-minded dimension that got inserted into organizations, but it was like a, a pendulum swing. So I do think that that piece of things is really key. Um, I do think, to your point, it is harder as it's easier, you know, my, both you and I had dads who ran small businesses. It's a lot easier if you've got you can see everybody and you know them and you can deal with all those issues than if you're large multinational organization. Um, and so both those things, you know, if you think about both of those, say it, it does require a very different level of leadership capability to be able to manage the reality of the external environment, to manage a, a large complex 
global organization and to sustain both those pieces. That's really, in some ways, if you say, well, what's the mission of the work of the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership? It's precisely because it's very hard to do what you're talking about. And it does require a very different, a very different kind of kind of leadership to make it come out right. You know, the good news is there actually are organizations that are able to do it, you know, and and I think that was, to me, what was so um, inspiring when we went out and talked to senior leaders who are running, you know, the Doug Conans of the world and, and um, Stan Bergman at, at, at Henry Schein, large global organization, um, Vince Valenza and... Um, Tom Pollan and 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 um, Ed Ludwig, a series of CEOs, multi generational CEOs at at Becton Dickinson, which has grown and scaled. So you know, I think you can create. You know, Unilever um, is a great organization. You know, certainly Paul Pullman, you know, has done a done a wonderful job. So there, Cummins Engine, you know, there there are some wonderful examples of large organizations that have been able to build this into their DNA. But I, what I will say, and I, you know, I, there's a there's a wonderful phrase, which is, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And I feel a little bit the same way about higher ambition, that it's never over, right? And that, you know, you, the history of books from In Search of Excellence to Built to Last and so on, if you think somehow there are these iconic companies and once you have it, you have it for it's just not true because the forces that you're talking about, um, the environment changes. Yeah, yeah it, it's always happening. So you've yeah. got to have to re you have to reinvent it and and revitalize and recreate it. You know, continually um, as a leader. I mean, it's just there's you can never rest on your laurels relative to to the leadership task. Um, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, the 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 article itself, which is all about performance and people, and um, the uncompromising leader the, article. The, is that right? The, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and the holding the center. You talk about four different things under holding the center, and the first one is earning the trust uh, of the organization in a way, and you talk about opening and sharing information getting feedback uh, and and this you know this build the trust and create alignment so and you talk about like even when it's about delivering for example painful news or bad news like for example you you even gave this example about 30 laying off 30,000 employees in the royal uh, uh, mail uh, uh, company uh, and so how could leader deliver such bad news to the organization and still it would be, it would earn trust? Yeah. So I really, th- this was a really, you know, it was interesting that the, 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 when we wrote this, so it was after 2008 and, you know, there was an awful lot of downsizing going on and it was an issue, you know, I really, struggled with. I mean, I think it's a fundamental issue. Um, You know, I think what what we found and what I believe is that I think 
it's back to the reality principle. I mean, I think it, that if senior leaders are authentic, humble, and transparent, and, you know, there is a reality that an organization faces. And if the organization is clear about that and it's, and it's legitimate, people understand the, and then the question is, well, how do you deal with that? You know, one of the things that I've seen is sort of the imperial CEO, right, who sends out the memo or has his HR people handle the layoffs. You know, what we saw is that these are leaders who were willing to face to face, you know, look people in the eye and say, look, here's where we are. And by the way, you as a human being go more than the, you are more than the role that you have in this company. And so we have to make a decision. (laughs) There's a reality there, but we're going to make sure you come out whole and you come out well, right? And so we're going to help you land on your feet and we're going to, you know, be connected to you. And by the way, you know, we're going to share the pain. You know, we're going to cut our salaries in a way that because we're in this together and we're building something together. And, you know, it's a funny thing. If you handle that in a way that has integrity, you can build connections and relationships with people. You know, even if they're leaving, they say, well, this was a high integrity organization. And and I was handled fairly and I was handled you know, and, I, and and not just handled is a terrible word, but I was treated. We we engage the company engaged in a way that I felt like I came out. I came out whole, and this is sort of where where fairness is critical, the transparency, and an honest process. I mean, one of the things that uh, one of the examples companies was uh, that we looked at was Masonite, uh, which was a company that, you know, um, uh, Fred Fred Lynch and Ken Freeman, who were two of the higher ambition CEOs we spoke to, um, were involved. And it was a major, you know, turnaround. And they, you know, kind of went into the valley of death, railroad into the sets of issues. And, you know, I, Fred said, you know, we, we would not have survived if it had not been for our values and the fact that we led with values and that we treated people in in a way that exemplified those values, even as we were radically um, restructuring the organization. Now, as I said before, you would hope you don't get into a situation like that and that you manage the organization in a way that you never have to do that again. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of higher ambition organizations that have managed not to lay people off that actually, you know, have people go on to furlough people, part-time work. You're seeing a lot of that happen now with COVID with people sharing the pain. So, you know, it's, it's, but there is a reality that, you know, the world is not just happiness and life, right? There are tough things that happen. It's true for all of us in our lives and in our families. And it's, it's true in business, but you know, if you deal with it, collectively and with integrity, people are remarkably forgiving in some sense. I mean, when I worked at Cummins Engine, um, I worked at this, I mentioned this, I worked at this team-based manufacturing plant. They wound up closing the plant. And it was an amazing thing because the business situation turned on them. And the people in the plant worked harder than they had ever worked 
in the three months before they closed the plant. And it was because of their sense of pride and that they were going to lead this organization in a place better than they found it. Wow. I mean, it was amazing to me. I, it was just astonishing to me um, that the, the level of commitment that people had. And it was partially because they had never been treated in, the, in, in that way by another organization. They'd been treated like they were adults, like they were, um, they had been given a sense of an initiative and pride. And, you know, they, it, it was a remarkable thing what people are willing to do if they feel like um, yeah. they're being treated appropriately. Yeah. Another example you give in the, uh, the article, the uncompromising, uh, uncompromising leader, uh, it's about this uh, case from Betcon Dickinson, which is, uh, what, I, I don't know if it's a CEO, Ludwig, he was a CEO. Ed Ludwig, yeah. yeah. yeah, I, yeah. In, that, in that case, actually, it was the other way around. One is delivering bad news, another one is receiving bad news. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it was about a project that he was trying to launch and, and implement, and it, it failed, which was an SAP project. And, and the fact that he went there and he wanted to, to face that, this ugly truth, why it failed, and because part of it is maybe his responsibility. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and it gets to actually the other piece of it, which is, it, you know, back to transparency and, and humility on the part of senior leaders, which is to say, look, acknowledging that, you know, leaders are not perfect, right? Creating an environment in which people are able to speak openly and honestly about the tough issues which is the other reason why, you know, transparency both ways makes so much sense. You know, I think Ed, you know, is a wonderful values-driven leader. And, you know, it's interesting, kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, Ed talks about in the book when we interviewed him about his Catholic upbringing, right? And his mom and and the set of values that he grew up with. And you have a sense that his identity is much deeper than just being the CEO on the hill and, you know, who has it all right and is the smartest person in the room. And, you know, I think Ed cared about Beckton Dickinson more than he cared about his own ego. And I think, you know, and I think that then creates the climate that says, look, we <laughs> we want to hear the truth. We're in this together, right? You know, we're going to figure it out and make it come out right. And I think it's one of the real assets that the purpose and values-driven organizations have is they create a context in which people can put the unvarnished truth on the table in a way that's not, you know, it's not about me as an individual. It's about what we're collectively trying to achieve. And um, it's one of the things we found that, you know, these leaders are great at, you know, that back to the issue of the opposite of the imperial CEO, you know, these are leaders um, who are willing to go out. And it was one of our other CEOs, um, uh, Dick Gottenauer, talked about um, the C- getting past the CEO big brain disease, which is somehow thinking that the CEO, Dick is a very smart CEO saying with this belief that somehow the CEO is the one who's got, you know, this brilliant brain and he's going to figure it all out as compared to, you know, what you see Dick did and Ed did 
go out in the field, talk to people, spend time on the front line, spend time with customers, time listening, because the people closest to the action actually know a lot. And Ed was smart enough to know that if I listen to people, you know, it's great. I'm going to drive SEP forward and nobody's going to tell me the truth. And then the whole company is going to come down. Well, that's not probably the best way for me to be successful yeah. for a leader. Better yeah. for me to acknowledge the truth. And then when Ed retired 10 years later, he was... He wasn't just a hero, but Beckton Dickinson was a hero, right? Yeah, so that's a, great, that's a lot, lot smarter approach. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So another thing you talk about when you talk about holding the center is focusing on very limited priorities. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I had an interview just a couple of weeks ago with the vice chairman of Alex Partners. Mm. Uh, his name is Stefano Aversa, and uh, he's a uh, brilliant, like in, in turnarounds and and transformational work. And he told me like this is he was working with one company actually. They had 144 projects running at the same time. <laughs> so, what do you think the challenge here? Because it it seems that mo- most organizations they are t- trying to do too many things at the same time. Is it is it trying the leadership trying to save their back, or or maybe not facing or taking a, a clear cut decision about this are things we're not gonna do, and this is how they end up there, or is it because they start the project and and then they they for they they are worried to close it down and and it got forgotten. What's the challenge here? It's really, it's it's very tough. I mean, I think this is a very difficult issue and it's one of the things that was most striking, um, you know, in these leaders is a real understanding. I think there was a quote by Tim Salsa we talked about, you know, one of the things I learned is sort of pick something, stay with it for two or three years and interesting things start to happen. Um, and <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. You know, there was a great, uh, another one of the leaders talked about, you know, you kind of have to, you have to repeat yourself so much that, you know, you're just bored to death because you have to keep repeating and coming back to the same, you know, to the same message. Um, I, I think that, you know, I think, look, I think in a way there's a natural tension, right, between the, the obvious way to, to be focused is to be very top down and say, here's what it is and what it's about. If you're empowering people, right, you know, part of what happens is people want to exercise autonomy and they have ideas. And I think there's a tension between focus and execution and innovation, right, which does require exploration and 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 moving forward. So I don't I don't think that there's a simple answer to this, but I do think that um, you know, in order the clarity at the center about what are the one or two things that we collectively need to do to move the, the business forward, that's tough. I think one of the th- and part of what it requires, I mean, this is one of the things that Mike and I, Mike Beer and I found in our work. First of all, it, it requires a strong senior leadership team, because I think what happens in most organizations is the leader tends to the the, the more traditional model is what I would call a hub and spokes model. So I manage the head of marketing, I manage the head of manufacturing, each of them has their own objectives. 
Um, and then they deploy it, and then each of those people have their objectives. And so then what happens is the organization winds up. So, you know, the head of marketing says, well, I'm going to drive for those, you know, I'm going to be the hero. And the head of manufacturing says they're going to be the hero. And then imagine you've got a set of divisions, and then each of those divisional presidents has their objectives. And now I have a three-dimensional matrix with my geographies, and each of the geographies, and each of those folks wants to be their hero, right? And and so if you drive in that kind of hub and spokes, strong accountability mode, it's almost impossible not to get into the situation where things proliferate. And then people say, well, gosh, you know, I'm living in a matrix world, right? I'm, I'm a product manager in a geography, um, you know, in a function, and I've got three different sets of 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 objectives coming down on me, and it all falls apart. And the only way around that is if you have a senior team that's saying, no, look, we're not just going to be having our functional or a business or a geographic hats on, but we're actually going to look at overall as a business, what are the two or three, not that there aren't those other things, because I think that's the key. It's not that organizations don't need to do a lot of things, but there are two or three major corporate level things that really matter for all of us that go above and beyond those individual pieces. And, you know, we need to understand how what we're doing relates to those. That requires, you know, what? It requires clar real clarity about the, the business. It requires a clear strategy. And it requires a really strong and aligned senior leadership team. And frankly, very few leadership, senior leadership teams tend to function and operate that way because sadly, you know, a lot of what allows people to get promoted up to the top is that people are very good at delivering on their individual objectives. They're not necessarily the collective team piece is not yeah. necessarily as strong. So yeah. anyway, those are a few. <laughs> just trying to unpack the question a little that's, bit. That's, yeah. a, that's a great point about the senior leadership team being responsible for defining the priorities of the whole organization and being clear about them versus allowing the functions or geographies basically to, to have their own priorities and then cascade them down uh, because then it gives signal to the whole organization, this is what we're going to focus on. Actually, uh, Jack Welch was... One of the few CEOs that I studied like deeply in a way, and he says that during his tenure as a CEO for GE, he he drove maybe four or five initiatives in the twenty years. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and and this again shows that it's about it's about focus, and and when you don't have the focus, it's it's very challenging for the organization. And they have to be they have to be above and beyond, right? So you know, I think B Beckton Dickinson and other organizations, you know, part of then that gets played out in in the performance management system. And people talk about being responsible for a set of corporate strategic objectives, and you, you know, and then my financial objectives and those other pieces of it. So there's some stru structural and um, operational things that you can do. But I do think that this fundamental issue really does come back to the senior leader and, and the management team. And, you know, an interesting piece of this is that when you talk about focusing on four or five things, embedded in that is an understanding that in order to execute on things that really matter, they, requ they, they both require cross-enterprise 
teamwork, you know, coordination, but they also require building distinctive capabilities. And I think that's part of, and, and so if you're just purely taking a financial view, which is I'm going to drive this and I'm going to drive that piece of it, you know, that's fine. You've got a lot of competing priorities and they're driving forward. But if you're thinking about it at an enterprise level, becoming a high, you know, making a fundamental sh improvement in our, the quality quality of our product, right, which requires a whole set of changes and processes and systems, that requires building really deep individual and organizational capabilities. And, and those, you, to your point, you, those are multi-year processes. And you've got to be really clear about what are you investing in and how do you build those capabilities over you know, yeah. over time. And honestly, a lot of leaders don't tend to think that way. I mean, they yeah. tend they tend to be thinking, again, back to the short-term orientation, right? You know, I've, I've got to drive for those results. I'm going to drive the programs that get me to those results. I think it requires a much deeper understanding of, well, how am I building deeper capability-based advantage organization by bringing these pieces together? And yeah. doing that, you've got to you really do have to be simple and clear about what really matters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another point you talk about under holding the center, it's engaging the whole organization, the whole organization. And I, and I, I love this, this point because in a way, like the work that I've been doing in the, in the last six, seven years have been all about this. But the idea of how, I mean, I was talking actually to one very senior leader uh, and he, he told me, you know, for me is I need to build my, my leadership team and, and then they lead their own teams and, and then this is how you create the alignment and then it, it, things will be okay and it will be aligned. And I, and I said, well, well, what about if you create alignment directly you know, from the senior leadership team and you across the organization. What about if you engage with the whole organization and you cut through the layers? Because then they are not like distorted messages, deleted messages, uh, and, and maybe new messages which are not even given, right? And yeah. I, I, I love what you talked about here. Like it's uh, the, the, the CEO of the Royal Mail or the chairman, the chairman, Alan Layton, and how he... Yeah. You know, he, he, he was receiving 200 emails a day, you know, like this is Ask, Ask Alan, and which, yeah. were, which were answered in, in seven days. He visited um, 1,600 delivery offices. Right. And, and, and then he engaged every, I don't know, like how, how many times a year, like with the, all, all the delivery office managers. So and spend for them a few days discussing the business, et cetera. I think that example for me is like so powerful. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about that point, engaging the organization? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. And I think, you know, it's an interesting one because I think it's, I think it's a, this is again, one of those both ends, not either or, because I do think that, um, you do want to be empowering the units, right? You know, you don't want sort of the imperial CEO and, you know, the cult of the CEO, right? And and I think I think in a turnaround, which is what Leighton was dealing with, um, the CEO does have more of a role, particularly in, in holding holding the center. But part of the 
part of the skill of the CEO then is to actually engage and empower your mid-level leaders, right, in a way that they embody a, the same culture and the same way of leading that you have at a CEO level. And so I think it is a both, I think it is a both end. And a danger for a CEO is that you you skip, you know, what people call the layer of clay, right? That middle layer of management and you go right to the front line and that's great, but then you get this huge resistance in the middle. So I think it 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 is, but I it seems to me that piece the both end for me. And I think this is what Leighton understood, and I think it's what um, a lot of higher ambition leaders understand, is that an organization is not just a hierarchy. In a lot of ways, it's a community. In, in deeper ways, it's a community with a culture. And that culture is one that embodies, includes everyone, right? Everyone's part of the culture. Everyone's part of the community. And that's a sense in which it's really key that you don't worry about the hierarchy, right? That, you know, Alan Layton's just a regular guy, you know, on the third shift talking to people. And people have ability to engage in a way that the hierarchy disappears because as members of the culture, we're all equal and we're able to talk to each other. And I, I think, to me, that's the deeper piece of it, which is a real understanding of the cultural dimensions of engagement, and then, and then I think there's a third piece of it which you're highlighting, which I think is really key. Then is about mobilization, right? Because the secret sauce is then, well, that's great. It's not just that I'm communicating more broadly; is that what these leaders realize? Well, my gosh, if I can, if I'm going to turn this place around, if I can energize and mobilize ten thousand people who are all jazzed up about making this happen boy, that's a heck of a lot more powerful than just me trying to figure out how to make it happen in the corporate office by, you know, how can I financial engineering and cutting costs here and driving down there. And, you know, that's really the ultimate issue, which is that the financially driven model ultimately is an amazingly inefficient model because it requires this huge level of oversight, you know, what all the information has to come up to the top. And then there's this huge amount of monitoring and control required, right? Because you believe that basically people are slugs. So, you know, we're going to treat them like slugs. So we need to put in place all these monitoring things, because otherwise, if we take our eye off them, they're going to do dumb things. And so you wind up with a huge amount of just overhead. And, you know, it's really interesting to me. I mean, the the whole economics, there's a, something called agency theory that developed in the 90s, you know, and it was built around this basic model, you know, the pure economic model that people are self-interested actors, they're going to do what they want in their own interest in ways that don't really help the organization overall. And it, it just, I think it leads to just an incredible number of dysfunctional consequences, Um relative to an organization as opposed to a sense of, you know, how do you, how do you create alignment through values and culture and in some sense, you know, um, sense of internal responsibility and responsibility to peers in ways that you really can mobilize distributed leadership in a very different, very different way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
you you talk also about collective leadership capability and in that in that point you talk about the we versus i basically the leader the, the senior leader the ceo leveraging like everyone on the leadership team especially yeah. people who have skills he doesn't have and and being aware self aware about the, the you know his his strengths and weaknesses and then leveraging the whole team yeah Yeah, I mean, I think exactly. So, I mean, that that way of understanding that, you know, we're a lot stronger than I, um, you know, you just see it in those CEOs at kind of every level, right? Both in terms of how they think about their leadership team, the immediate direct reports. It was a really interesting finding in the research is that, you know, you tend to think about, oh, this is about the CEO. But in fact, even at the highest leadership level, usually there were three or four leaders with complementary capabilities, each of whom played major enterprise-level leadership roles. And, you know, they they really supported each other. And, and honestly, the CEO was smart enough to realize that they didn't have the whole package. And they, you know, they were ultimately, they were the tiebreaker. They were the person who brought the pieces together, but they brought together that team. And then that same way of thinking, you know, I think played itself out all the way down through the organization. Yeah. Um, do you, do you yeah. think this goes even to the point about the balance between people and performance? Do you think that some leaders they are like gifted or their strengths is mostly on one side and it's very difficult to find one by himself able to really balance the whole thing by him or herself? So that's a good, it's a good question, right? I mean, you know, it's a little bit of um, the, it goes back to, you know, traditional um, gender roles, right? You know, that the that men are, you know, task oriented and women are, you know, more emotionally oriented and that in teams that, you know, you have people who drive the task and other people who play more of the emotional roles. And I do think that people um, in teams, in some teams, in some relationships, you know, you, you will have some people, whether men or women or whoever, who are more oriented and driving harder on the task side and other people who may be more attuned to the interpersonal dynamics. My view, though, is that particularly at the CEO level, you have to embody a significant level of both both of those sides because I think there's huge danger in it becoming bifurcated. I mean, in organizations, you know, you see a lot HR often and OD winds up you you delegate the people piece to OD, you know, or HR, and the managers just, you know, worry about the task stuff. That's a real you problem. Can, yeah, you, <laughs> right? you cannot do that. You, <laughs> you can't do, do that. that, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's a real problem, yeah. right? And it's, so it's a little you know, bit I, like the the quality the quality being the responsibility of the quality manager. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's not that you yeah. don't. Ha- but on the other hand, you do want to have a quality function. So I I think it, it it's not that everybody owns it equally, but at some level, I think particularly on this dimension, and particularly. It seems to me it's a fundamental way in which you have to evaluate your leaders. And some basic level of uh, 
capability on both sides, I think is just is absolutely critical. And I think at yeah. the CEO level, you really want to have leaders who are strong, strong on 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 both of those sides. Um, yeah. And yeah. also wise enough also to say, even with that, you know, there are other dimensions and ways in which people need to keep me honest um, yeah, and, yeah. and come and supplement who I am. Interesting yeah. enough, I was listening to this interview with this, actually the CEO of Alex Partners. So yeah. I, I interviewed the vice, the vice uh, chairman, but the, he's a chairman. And in the interview, he talked about that leaders need to pay attention and differentiate between two uh, KPIs, you know, le- uh, the leading and the trailing. And the leading is the people and the trailing is basically the the, the financial performance. And I found it really from a, from an organization which is focused on turnaround, which usually, they, yeah. you know, they, they focus on the cost and the financials, et cetera. He's saying, look, you need to put people in the center. And I found it very powerful. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, if you're trying to create sustainable, I mean, if I just... If, I mean, I, I believe just from a values and a human dimension, treating people well matters in and of itself. It, irrespectively, you know, for me personally, I, 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 that's back to where I grounded and, and who I am. But if you just simply took a purely instrumental perspective and you said, look, I'm interested in creating long-term sustainable economic value, you say, well, look, you know, in order to do that, you have to... In, investing in distinctive human and organizational capabilities and building, you know, what we call kind of intangible assets, right? You know, reputation, trust, commitment, that's a very smart strategy. And, yeah. you know, if you say, I mean, one of the ways you think about it is that the 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 um, the way you value an investment is based on a future earning stream. Well, what drives that future earning stream? It's the, it's the actual capabilities and distinctive of an organization that you're building over time. And yeah. so, you know, you think about the head of Alex Partners, essentially, that's what he's saying. Look, I'm, I, I want to build the engine, right, which I realize is embedded in human beings. And if I can do that, man, I have a heck of an a financial asset, If I, yeah. even if I'm just thinking about it that way, above and yeah. beyond. Also feels like an, a lot a lot more fun and a lot better way to lead your life if you feel like you're making exactly. a positive difference in the world, right? Exactly, you know, as, as opposed to how much money you have in the bank. But Absolutely. Yeah. The, the second part of the article, uh, the uncompromising leader, we talk about the shared purpose and, uh, and, and I like the this expression which or this descriptive of the shared purpose which is emotionally resonant and of course in, in that you talk about like in the, building a better world uh, you know delivering performance being proud of providing opportunity for growth for the people but how could leaders make the purpose or the shared purpose emotionally resonant So I think, you know, I think the emotional resonance really has to do with 
making a difference in the world that goes above and beyond just the financial. You know, I remember in, in, in an early interview I did, even with Mike back in the 80s, and, you know, it's, it's hard for people to get excited about, you know, increasing earnings per share by 15%. You know, you're yeah. on the bottom. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to, to tell my wife, you know, gosh, the company just increased earnings by shares. You know, isn't that fantastic? Well, you know, maybe if there is a stock sharing um okay, that's good, you know, yeah. relative. So it's not that there's something, but it's just, but at the end of the day, and then that's not true in most companies. Okay. You know, you want, I think human beings want to feel proud about the contribution they're made. They want to be proud about the contribution that the company is making. And so I think, you know, emotionally resonant in some ways, it, it's not that complicated. It's genuinely that the company in a in a meaningful fundamental way is really committed and the whole purpose of the company is making a positive difference in the world and that you individually feel like your work contributes to that right so i think a lot about connecting purpose with a capital p e.g. corporate purpose to individual purpose with a small p which is individual purpose right you know do i feel like I can, when I go to work in the morning, you know, I'm making a difference and I can see how that connects to an organization that I can feel proud of, another P, right, pride. And there was a wonderful, Leif Johansson had a wonderful, wonderful um, story that he shared with, you know, with us when we did the research. And he, he talked about how he said, you know, when I think about myself as a CEO and whether I'm making a difference, um, the ultimate test, the acid test for me is what I call kind of the kitchen table test, which is Saturday morning sitting down with my family. And if I can tell them about what we're doing at work and they understand it and they're excited about it, then I've really, then I feel like I've done something that matters in the world. So, you know, you talk about, well, what is an emotionally resonant purpose? It's, it's, being able to articulate that in a way that makes sense. And I'll give you an example of one good example of, I think, what that could look like. But if it's just something up on the wall, okay, that, you know, it's just cynicism, right? I think, but if you can take that purpose and bring it to life in individuals' work in a way that they can talk to their families about it, yeah, that that's something that 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 really, 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 really matters. Can I share a story about that? Because I yeah, 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 please, yeah, please. Yeah, so you know, I talked about Masonite before, and I mentioned that um, in the turnaround at Masonite, um, it, you know, Fred and Ken highlighted that they had to take some very tough steps, and but that it was really about values and authenticity at that point. And you know, it was interesting when Fred got involved in the higher ambition work, Fred Lynch, he said, you know, I don't feel like we're ready to be articulating purpose because we haven't earned it. You know, we've got to get the financial and the foundational pieces in place. For me at this point, it's more about values. But at a certain point, they really did write the ship and financially they were in a good place. They got the product in a place that it needed to be. Said, well, gosh, you know, Masonite is in the door business. So they create um, 
industrial doors and garage doors and residential doors and so on. Say, so, well, you know, how do we create an emotionally resonant purpose around doors? Okay, you know, doors are great, but it's not exactly, it's not like, you know, solving world hunger or healthcare or the rest of it. And they did a lot of work looking at the core values of the company and what people did. And they came up with a purpose statement, which was, we help people to walk through walls. And so you think about, well, what is a door? Well, actually, a door is something that allows people to walk through a wall. And then they said, well, that's 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 powerful, right? I mean, that's a lot more emotionally resonant. Well, okay, but how do we make that more than just a marketing statement? And they said, well, how do we help people walk through walls? Well, actually, you know, we help our employees to walk through walls because we help them to overcome obstacles. You know, a lot of the people we hire in our manufacturing plants are people who may not even have a high school degree. We help them to walk through walls by giving them opportunity. You know, by the way, we have a huge immigrant population, you know, in a variety because of the kinds of places where our manufacturing plants are. And so we help people who are, you know, new to this, to the United States to walk through walls. And so they connected that purpose statement with the work that they were doing in in helping immigrant populations in the United States to get their legs under them, working with, you know, high school students to help them to, to, and so, you know, back to the kitchen table test, you say, well, gosh, you know, that's pretty exciting. I'd love to come home and tell my family about, I walk for, work for a company that helps people walk through walls and, yeah. you know, we do that and let's talk about not just, not just, again, back to big P and small P, connecting that in meaningful ways. Wow, that's 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 pretty exciting. Yeah. I'd love to work yeah, for a company like yeah. that. I think maybe what, what it requires in order to define this, is, it's not a science, it's an art in a way, right? Do you agree? To articulate it, to come up totally. with it. Totally. You know, yeah. No, I totally agree, right? It's not, you know, the five steps in the Harvard Business you know, yeah, yeah. In, in our case study and, you know, check the box. I mean, you do yeah. kind of need that piece of it. But but there is. Yeah. I mean, back to it being human, a human undertaking and and an ability to somehow capture all of that in a way that's emotionally resonant for people. It does require um, it does require an art and it requires a bit of soul, I think, you know, on the yeah. part of the CEO and the team. Yeah. 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 So, Russ, Russ we, we now we're reaching like the final section of, of the interview where I would like to ask you some personal questions. And the first one is, <laughs> okay. the, the, first, the first one is actually, what's, what's one or two of your top success habits or, or habits which helped you to be successful? And again, you, you worked with McKinsey, you worked in Harvard, you, you wrote um, uh, like books, you wrote uh, really Great article to have a business review. You worked with a you know big companies and and you, you've been on a mission and you accomplished a lot yeah. of things. What really helped you as success habits? Yeah, so three three things. Let me suggest um, the first is listening. You know, actually. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that, you know, we, what we were discussing about we is stronger than me. Um, and that one of the things that I, I talked to my wife about a lot through the years is that in some ways it's about the work, right? So if you take your ego out of the way and you just simply actually engage and and listen you know my experiences and my experiences that when you get stuck and things get tangled up in knots it's often because your ego is getting in the way and somebody else's and you're kind of butting heads as opposed to actually getting to the both end that, that comes out of um listening and and engaging I think the second piece, which has been interesting for me, has been um, I, I, you know I, I just haven't really worried that much about um, the success stuff, right? I mean, I, I it just felt to me like if you work with with talented people on work that matters, the rest of it will work itself out. And so, you know, if I look back on my career, a lot of things have happened, but it's not like it was planned. It's just that, you know, you if you work with t talented, high integrity people and you do good work, things evolve and, 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 and work in a good direction. And, I, you know, I've had people say, well, gosh, you know, it just seems like really courageous. You left Harvard Business School and then you started this consulting firm and then you created this nonprofit and it just felt each step of the way like well you know kind of why not you know it's working with good people and it's going after something that we believe in and you know and you take a a, a balanced approach you know I also I also do want to say and I think this is really important I, I have been incredibly blessed in my life right I mean I was born in the United States I was born in an upper middle class home I'm a you know, a, a white man. I went to an Ivy League school. Um, I'm not naive about the degree to which I had a set of opportunities, each of which built on the next. The people I met at Harvard that then led to my ability to, in graduate school that allowed me to have, you know, be at the Harvard Business School, which then connected me to a set of people, which connected to the relationship. You know, what it was very humbling to go to be in the Cummins engine plan and be in Quincy, Illinois and deal with people who were in a small town and just see how incredibly smart and talented those people were, but they weren't connected in that. So I, I want to be really, really careful, you know, as I'm talking about all these wonderful tips and success and all the rest mm -hmm. of it, because I think 80 to 90% of the variance, frankly, is those dimensions. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the final yeah. thing I do, I do want to say is that I think for me, and I think this was true for the CEOs, is that being rooted in things that go beyond work really matters a lot. You know, my family, my faith, you know, a set of values that, that um, really mean something. I mean, I think maybe that's the deepest thing. You know, I think back to our families, you know, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, there are things that that matter a lot more um, and that are much more fundamental. And I think it just seems to me that if you're, if you're not, 
if you're not grounded in those, in some ways you can't have a successful life, right? Because what does success mean? I mean, it really means living a life that that embodies the things that you believe in in the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is uh, so powerful. What about, uh, how did you keep learning throughout the years? How did you keep growing? And a lot of things changed since you started uh, 40 years ago and today. How did you keep up with all the changes and you kept growing? Um, you know, curiosity, I mean, back to, to listening. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think we each have our own character and you were talking before about kind of the focus piece, you know, you take one thing and you drive forward and, and, um, there's the, you know, the classic, um, uh, I guess it was Isaiah Berlin, you know, the head, the 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 um, the, the, the hedgehog um, and, and the fox, right? You know, the, the the hedgehog knows one thing and it does it well, and and the fox knows many things and they they manage over time. I think I tend to, I think I'm probably more of a fox than a hedgehog, um, so I'm probably a better at the end of the day. Back to focus, I'm probably a better academic and a consultant than I am a, a CEO, right? You know, who does need to be driving those one those one things forward. So so for me. You know, that's kind of my lifeblood has been learning. But I, I think yeah. I think, you know, I do think that the piece of that is really around connecting, reaching out and connecting to other people who are different than you are, who you can learn from. Right. And and being curious about that. I mean, that's the most wonderful thing in the world. I mean, I remember when we before we started the higher ambition research you know, we had a consulting firm and I was just getting bored. I was just getting bored of going out and giving the same talk and sharing the same three brilliant, you know, quote, insights that came out of the stuff and, you know, and having the methodology. And I just felt like, gosh, we just need to go out and listen and learn from people. And everything, honestly, all of the best work that I've done in my career has come from going out and talking and listening to leaders and managers. You know, Mike Beer and I went out, we talked to, we wrote the critical path of corporate renewal. You know, the, the distinctive thing we did is we actually, as opposed to starting with a theory or with a small study, we went out and we actually talked to 150 leaders at every level in six companies around their transformation. Just listen to what they had to say. Wow. wow. You know, the insights are overwhelming. And it was the same thing with the Higher Ambition book, you know, talking to amazing CEOs in the U.S. and in Europe and in, and in India, which is what we did. You know, Alan Layton, you know, people you were talking about, right? I mean, you, you know, how can you not be growing and learning if you just talk to the amazing people and you listen to what they have to say? Yeah. Um, you know, it's an amazing privilege really some of us have yeah yeah this actually motivates me on my journey in this podcast because (laughs) yeah in a way in a way like you know like having this conversation with you like i'm i'm learning you know so much but just but just being in this conversation so which i'm very grateful for yeah well so so here you go right so you're going to do these podcasts and so what you should be thinking about is do I write a book? You know, is there an yeah, article yeah. that start to, what are the themes that are coming out across some of these and how do yeah. I put those pieces together? It's a, yeah, yeah it's yeah. a great thing. You know, it's yeah, a great yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. What's the one advice you have for leaders, organizational leaders? 
Dash, one piece of advice for organizational leaders. Well, you can you can go for two if you like. Yeah. I think I think that um, I think it I think it I think it I think there are a couple things. So I do think that the 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 first of those is it's kind of it's looking internally and it's looking externally. So I think you know internally is kind of getting grounded in who you are and and what you care about. Um, and what you really care, and not just sort of writing it down, but thinking about your history, reflecting back on the places where your enacted values, the things that keep coming up, the things that if you think about your family and you think about, you know, the leadership roles that you had growing up that, that really are foundational for, for you, that, and that honestly define kind of what success means. I mean, I do think that that really matters, that piece of saying as a human being what's the difference that I want to make in the world and I feel mm-hmm. like if you haven't done that work um, in a way that's not defined by the company but really defined by who you are in a way that's sort of honest and authentic and then I think that I think then the second piece of that is, is um, reflecting externally and I think it's both reflecting around the exemplars, right? So who are the leaders that you look up to and the people and what is it that you, um, one of my colleagues, Meta Norgard, talks about resonance and dissonance. You know, what resonates for you in leaders and what's the dissonance? You know, what are the things that we're talking about, right? Learning both from leaders who, who you respect and those who you don't. Um, but then also the reflection back around what are you learning from other people about your own capabilities? You know, both the areas that 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 are your natural strengths. And I think I do think I my one of the things that I discovered, I really do believe is building on strengths. So really the, the reflected best self reflecting on what what are you at, at your at your best, what is the value that you provide for other people? But then also understanding, you know, the the things that aren't your natural sweet spot, back to the things that are complementary for you and getting to a place. I think if I think if you have those three things, you really are grounded in who you are and what success looks like. You have a sense of from looking at other people about what what good leadership looks like relative to leaders you've connected and 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 a deep understanding about your own capabilities, most of all the strengths, but also the, the areas that, that are probably the things that aren't, don't come as naturally to you. I think that's a pretty, and actually I have, I'm sorry, I ha- there yeah. is, realizing it's four, because I yeah. do think there's a fourth, which is actually getting yourself in an organization where you can make that come out right. I think That's being really point. smart about, <laughs> um, you know, when you recruit, it's not just about salary. It's also about being in a place where the culture and the context can support and reinforce that. Um, I mean, yeah. the first three are really about you, but I think the fourth piece, which is the context. really The environment matters. that you, you want to work yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there any additional distinction or insight you give for younger leaders, aspiring leaders? 
I think items number four, you know, that last issue, which is where they work, is even even more important, you know. And, and I think probably the thing, my experience is that often, you know, it's certainly true for me, but I see it, you know, with my kids and, and, and with other folks as well. It's much easier, you know, you go for reputation. Oh, gosh, you know, the company that has the most sizzle and, and maybe compensation. And, and you look at those things and you don't look at sort of some of the cultural questions, the issue of who's the leader that you're actually working for and, and what that's about. The other thing I think is important for, for, for younger leaders is, is, um, is in some sense, trusting yourself in the, in, in the sense of not feeling like you're chained if you wind up in the wrong organization, being willing to move, you know, and being willing or go out on your own or to try things and to fail and to, you know, that a career, I mean, I I think actually my sense is that, you know, when I grew up, I think people had much more of an instinct of, oh, I'm going to go in an organization and I'm going to stay there. But, you know, the reality is careers are in multiple organizations over time. And, and so being comfortable with that, I, you know, one of the things that I think about, if I think about a career, um, and I've talked about this with my kids, I think, um, I feel like ultimately career, career security comes from two things. It comes from reputation and relationships. And I think, you know, what people often think is, well, gosh, it's because I have this position and I'm moving forward. But reputation, which really comes from capabilities and competence, um, and then your relationships, right? The web of relationships that you build with people, not just in your organization, but more broadly. If you do that, if you've built your reputation because of the quality of your work and you build your relationships with people who know about it, you'll do great in the world, right? Because people need talented people who can you know, make a positive difference, especially as organizational boundaries and, you know, become more permeable, Um, you know, things will work well. So to me, that's what I would be thinking about from a, you know, from a, how am I going to feed my kids and my family perspective? I'd be thinking about relationships and, and, um, and, 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 and reputation in terms of what I'm building. And then I'd be thinking about the four things that we talked about earlier, particularly starting with what's the company I'm working for and who's the leader I'm working and even more almost who's the leader I'm working for. Because as we said before, that's how I'm going to grow as a leader is by having an opportunity to learn from other leaders and then, you know, having exposure and, and an ability to grow and, and develop. This is great. My last question to you, Russ, is what's the legacy that you'd like to leave behind with all the work, all the teaching, all the consultancy, and also, of course, the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership, which is a center, it's a nonprofit organization, which is all focused on promoting, connecting, developing this new generation of, of leaders who are looking beyond economical value, social delivering social value, making the, the world a better place, developing their people, taking care of their people, engaging them, etc. That's a that's a hard question. I mean, I, and I think it's a pro, it's a profound 
question. Um, you know, I, I would, my hope is, you know, in some modest way <laughs> to, to make a different, you know, there are sort of three dimensions of legacy, I think, for me that really matter. You know, the first of them is, is, is back to relationships, right? Is sort of at a very, you know, you hope you make a difference, a positive difference in other human beings' lives that you touch and, and, you know, your colleagues and, and your family and, and friends. And, and for me, that, that is fundamental and foundational. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it starts with human beings and your connections to human beings. Um, I hope that in some small way that the work that I've done and the work with my colleagues has really helped to shift the mindset and the frame around not just what businesses are, but really what organizations are. I mean, I, I think, you know, we haven't talked about this, but social organizations, nonprofit organizations are also economic organizations, and they also need to be taking this. So the, the shift in frame to this kind of balanced, more what I would call a, a more human-centric approach to the world, um, it, but in a way that understands the realities of the, the, the hard-headed realities of economics. I think if we real if we've played some role and I played some role in making that shift in frame, you know that that, that would be deeply valuable for me. And then the third is institutionally. Um, I, as you you highlighted this the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership and the community, um, if we've helped to build, a community and an ever-expanding community of leaders who are committed to those values and they're supporting each other. And that has legs that go on beyond me. Um, that, that would be, that would be really deeply, deeply satisfying for me. Yeah. Russ, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing this wealth of experience, this insights, and I have to say, I mean, for me, this has been so inspiring. I, I, I learned so much, but I got also energized and, and inspired by your own reflections, which for me, it, 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 it gives me fuel actually for, for my journey here. But the, <laughs> the, the, you, you know, the mission you've been on and the values that you stand for are exactly you know, why this podcast was built. And uh, and I, I think most of the listeners of this podcast are looking for insights and, and ideas and, and tools about how to, to take care of that aspect of, of leadership, which is usually it's, 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 it's talked about, but it's not talked about in a way which is comprehensive enough and, and given enough attention to it. So you coming and, and sharing this is something I'm, I'm deeply grateful for. So thank you so much. Thank you. No, I, it, I and and thank you. I it it, it 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 was a wonderful gift to have an opportunity to reflect on a lot of things that you know you spend your life doing, and and sometimes it's it's great to have an opportunity to sit back and begin back and reflect. You ask tough questions, so that's good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much.
Uh, and thank you to all of you, our listeners. Uh, I, I hope that you get a lot of inspiration and, and ideas which you can go and apply and use on your own journey, making a difference in your own environment, in your own organizations. And if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, please do so. If you haven't given us feedback, I would be really curious to hear from you. Until the next time, until the next episode, take care and keep making a difference. Bye.